Ben Franklin was always noted for his wit and his knowledge of being able to come up with something on the spur of the moment. There was one time when he was ambassador to France and there was a state dinner. And the time came for toast to be given. And so the French foreign minister stood up with his glass raised and he said, to Louis XVI, His Serene Majesty, who is the sun and whose radiance shines on the earth of France. Well, not to be outdone, the English ambassador then stood up and raised his glass. To His Royal Highness King George III, who is the moon and whose light shines on the British Empire all over the world. And then Franklin stood up and raised his glass. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Colonel George Washington. And he said, who is the Joshua who made the sun and the moon stand still at his command? <laughs> it's always interesting to watch people positioned for power and to get into trying to one-up one another. It is the stuff that our world is made of. Power and grandeur, control over all things, to seek that new promotion, to get a greater area of responsibility. It's what our world is powered by. It's what it seeks in all things. You know that quote that Lord Acton gave us so many years ago, the quote that goes like this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. There is that fatal flaw that seems to go along with rising to power, with being someone who is being separated from the rest of the crowd. That fatal flaw that the Greeks called hubris, that excessive pride that begins to take over someone and always seems to end in their destruction. You know, it's true in the world. We see it again and again as we look at tabloids and newspapers that talk about the famous and the powerful. But it's true also as we look through Scripture and we think of some of the people that we see who had great power, who had prestige, who were given a place by God. For Samson, the man who is known as the strongest man to ever live, who was able to kill thousands of Philistines with a jawbone from a donkey. And yet we see that fatal flaw exercise itself in his life, where it began to get and creep into him so much that his confidence was in himself and no longer in God. And then that time when his hair was cut and he lost that strength and he realized how far he had fallen. We think of Peter who was always quick to tell the Lord what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And how Jesus had to turn and put him down when he said that he would never go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. That won't happen to you, Lord. And then Peter to fall from his stature to the point of denying his own Lord and Savior three times. We see it over and over again. And it existed in the city of Corinth. You see, there was a problem in Corinth that existed that went like this. People were beginning to have spiritual experiences, mystical visions, things like that. Corinth was a place in the Greek world of wisdom and sophics and literature and rhetoric, and they were schooled in these things, and knowledge was supreme in their minds. 
So when these spiritual things began to happen, what would happen is they would come together and one would begin to tell their story of the spiritual experience and another would tell their story only trying to one-up the other person. Don't we see that exhibited sometimes not just in areas of power but in simple areas of life? There was an elderly woman at a party one time who was talking with a younger woman about her family history. She was so impressed with her own family history that she said, we can trace our history and our family back to Alexander the Great. As she looked at this young woman, she said, and what about you, my dear? What about your family history? To which the young woman looked at her and replied, well, we really don't know much about our family history. You see, all of the records of our family were lost in the great flood. And so it is. The one-upmanship that took place in Corinth got to the point where everybody would begin to elaborate on their own story. And if you didn't have a story to tell about what you had experienced, well, then you were less. You were not important. It got to the point so much that they began to ask the Apostle Paul, what was his criteria? What was his story? What could he? Were we better than you, Paul, in our experience and the things that we enjoyed? So Paul begins to write, and in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says these following words, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. You know, Webster defines weakness in this way. A quality or feature regarded as a disadvantage or fault. A quality or feature regarded as a disadvantage or fault. And yet Paul says in our epistle today, I will therefore boast in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Here truly is a paradox of our faith, that the world around us prizes power and grandeur and status, but the world in which we live and move in Jesus Christ, our Savior, is a world in which weakness is something to be prized. I want to put a slide on the screen that Pastor Mark sent me this week, and I think it really sums up what we're talking about. We've seen it play over. I've seen it play over in a lot of families and in the world. I am not a Christian because I am strong and I have it all together versus I am a Christian because I am weak and admit I need a Savior. How many times have family members and children gone off to college to learn and become brilliant and in their brilliance come back and say, I no longer need the faith. I have learned everything. This is such foolishness that you believe. It happens again and again that we become puffed up in our wisdom, in our arrogance, just as the Corinthians were. And Paul needed to bring them back to the truth. The truth that's found in the Word of God. The truth 
of who God is and how God exhibits himself in the world, not through power and grandeur, but through humility and weakness. And so Paul says those words again, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. There is conjecture all through whatever commentary you pick up. But it was such a problem to him that it caused him problems in his ministry, caused him problems in his ability to continue. And he says, three times I asked the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan from me. And the response was no. The response was, Paul, because of this thorn in the flesh, you have need. You need me and you need my grace and my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. It will keep you. It will surround you. It will hold you. And Paul realized then that this weakness was the very thing that bound him tightly to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know how often it is in our prayer life sometimes that I think we are hindered by our mindset and our ability that we think this is a realm in our lives that we should be able to control. So why would we offer it up to God in prayer? Prayer and need seems to be in our mind weakness and we don't want to exhibit weakness. We can handle this. We can do these things. But what Paul is saying that we as Christ followers need to admit that we are in need. That we do need to be rescued. That we do in fact need the Savior who came to give us his grace and his love. How often haven't we seen weakness in our world played out and become strength in so many areas? I know for myself, and maybe I've told the story before, when our son was young, a year and a half, he got encephalitis and we were in the hospital for about six weeks while they worked to clear the infection in his brain. You know, while you're in there day after day because you have to be with a child on the peds floor, it gets wearing, and at the same time, both of us, Sarah and I, got the flu, and we kind of then would say, well, which of us is worse? You can stay home today. I'll go to the hospital. You begin to see your world as the only thing around you, and you think that your agony and your suffering is all that there is. And I remember sitting in that room, and that there was somebody that came into the room across the hall, but the lights always stayed dark in that room. And so we asked the nurse one day what the situation was, and this was before the HIPAA laws had taken place. And she said, well, that's a lady and her son over there. You see, they had stopped on the freeway in Detroit. She had a flat tire. And when she stopped, another car hit them in the back. So it killed their other son, and this son has a brain injury, and we don't know if he's going to live. She's in there with him so that someone could be there. In fact, she couldn't even go to the funeral of her other son. You know, when you hear something like that in your own misery and sorrow, suddenly you realize the blessings that you have been given. That I'm not there. That truly, Lord, your grace is sufficient for me. For you have given us all things. 
It happens in many situations and so much in our lives when we look at the weakness in things around us, it can tend to consume us and we forget the grace and the love that we have been given by our Savior and how he truly has blessed us in many ways. I remember a brother in the seminary who went out on field work. Field work is when we first get into the seminary, they send you out to begin to learn how to do hospital or nursing home calls. You have no experience. You're pretty green at it. And so they send us to areas around the seminary. He went in for his first field work call and they sent him to a woman who had pretty much given up on life and just wanted to die. He said the whole thing began as a disaster. He walked into the room and he kind of hit the door a little too hard and it flew open and slammed against the wall with this loud echo through the halls. The nurses came running to see what was wrong and he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, it was just me. I opened the door too hard. He walked across the room to see the lady in the bed and he tripped on one of the cords and fell into the bed. She looked up startled at him. He began to talk to her, not knowing what to say or how to say it. He said there were these huge awkward pauses of just silence where he's like, how are you? I'm so-and-so from the seminary. He said, I tried to pray with her. He said, but everything came out wrong. He said, I just stumbled through the prayer. Lord, um, could you look um, on this lady here? What's your name? He said it was just a disaster. He walked out of that room and he said with tears in his eyes, he said, I, I'm, I'm done, I shouldn't be a pastor. But you know, they send you week after week to these things. So the next week he went in, just dreaded going back into the room of this woman. But he entered and there the curtains were open and she was sitting in a chair writing out something with a smile on her face. She said, oh, I hoped I'd see you again. He says, what do you mean? He said, I came last time and it was such a disaster. How can you want to see me again? She said, yeah, I know, you were terrible. But she said, you know what? I realized how bad you were and that you really needed somebody and my focus came off of me on you. So I realized I might as well go on with life. I'm not as bad off as you are. <laughs> you know, isn't it the truth? We sometimes get caught up in that weakness in the mentality of our world. That weakness is something to dread and weakness is something that we shouldn't celebrate. But Paul says we should celebrate our weakness, our need, our dependence on our Savior Jesus Christ. Because this is God's message to us and his theme throughout the scriptures who came in the flesh, as we just confessed in the creed, became man, his state of humility, we call it theologically, humbled himself, depended on human beings like you and me. God Almighty, who created all things, wrapped in human flesh, dependent now, vulnerable, risking everything that Mary and Joseph would take care of this baby, would raise it, that it would live and be protected. See, incredible strength and weakness. And then, of course, as he grew and his ministry flourished, then the true weakness and the glory of that weakness was shown in the cross. The scandal of the cross, as the scriptures say, a scandal, something that people wouldn't want to look at, something that people don't want to hear, just like those who are embroiled in scandal today. How could Messiah, the King of Israel, the one who was to come in power and in glory, 
die as a criminal, a state criminal under Rome who occupied them on a cross. And yet we know in this cross, this weakness to the world was the incredible power of God to break the chains of sin and death and Satan and to open the kingdom of heaven to you and to me. You see, in our prayers, we need to rejoice in the weakness that we have, in our failures, in the fact that we are people in need. We need mercy and we need love and we need grace so that Christ's true power, the power of his cross, might rest on us, might raise us from our place and might give us strength to know his love and his grace surrounding us. How well the words of Isaac Watts penned so many years ago are, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. In Christ Jesus, amen.